chapter three part two of the ordeal of mark twain this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. the ordeal of mark twain by van wick brooks chapter three the gilded age part two for it was not enough for the pioneers to suppress those influences that were hostile to their immediate efficiency they were obliged also to romanticize their situation solitary as they were or at best united in feeble groups against overwhelming odds how could they have carried out their task if they had not been blinded to the difficulties the hideousness of it the myth of manifest destiny the american myth as one might call it what was it but an immense rose-colored veil the pioneers threw over the continent in order that it might be developed never were there such illusionists they were like men in a chloroform dream and it was happily so for that chloroform was indeed an anesthetic without the feeling that they were the children of destiny without the social dream that some vast boon to humanity hung upon their enterprise without the personal dream of immeasurable success for themselves who would ever have endured such voluntary hardships one recalls poor john clemens mark twain's father absorbed in a perpetual motion machine that was to save mankind no doubt and bring its inventor millions one recalls that vision of the tennessee land that buoyed up the spirit of squire hawkins even while it brought him wretchedness and death as for colonel sellers who was so intoxicated with dreams of fortune that he had lost all sense of the distinction between reality and illusion he is indeed the archetypical american of the pioneering epoch one remembers him in his miserable shanty in the tennessee wilds his wife worn to the bone his children half naked and half starved the carpetless floor the pictureless walls the crazy clock the battered stove to colonel sellers that establishment is a feudal castle his wife is a chatelaine his children the baron's cubs and when he lights the candle and places it behind the isinglass of the broken stove is it not to him indeed and in truth the hospitable blaze upon the hearth of the great hall to such a degree has the promoter's instinct the wish of the advertiser taken possession of his brain that he already sees in the barren stretch of land about him the city which is destined some day to rise up there the vision of the material opportunities among which he lives has supplanted his reason and his five senses and obliterated in his eyes the whole aspect of reality the pioneers in fact had not only to submit to these illusions 
but to propagate them a story mark twain used to tell the story of jim gillis and the california plums is emblematic of this jim gillis the original of bret hart's truthful james was a miner to whose solitary cabin in the tuolumne hills mark twain and his friends used to resort one day an old squaw came along selling some green plums one of the men carelessly remarked that while these plums california plums might be all right he had never heard of anyone eating them there was no escape after that says mr Payne. jim had to buy some of those plums whose acid was of the hair-lifting aquafortis variety and all the rest of the day he stewed them adding sugar trying to make them palatable tasting them now and then boasting meanwhile of their nectar-like deliciousness he gave the others a taste by and by a withering corroding sup and they derided him and rode him down but jim never weakened he ate that fearful brew and though for days his mouth was like fire he still referred to the luscious health-giving joys of the california plums how much of the romanticism of the pioneers there is in that story it was the same over-determination that led them to call their settlements by such names as eden like that wretched swamp hamlet in martin chuzzlewit that made them inveigle prospectors and settlers with utterly mendacious pictures of their future that made it obligatory upon everyone to boost not knock a slogan still of absolute authority in certain parts of the west behind this tendency the nation was united as a solid block it would not tolerate anything that attacked the ideal of success that made the country seem unattractive or the future uncertain every sort of criticism in fact was regarded as lege majesté to the folk spirit of america and no traveller from abroad however fair-minded could tell the truth about us without jeopardizing his life liberty and reputation who does not remember the story of dickens connection with america the still more notable story of the good captain basil hall who simply because he mentioned in print some of the less attractive traits of pioneer life was publicly accused of being an agent of the british government on a special mission to blacken and defame this country merely to describe facts as they were was regarded as a sort of treachery among a people who having next to no intellectual interest in the truth had on the other hand a strong emotional interest in the perversion of it an american who went abroad and stayed without an official excuse more than a reasonable time was regarded as a turncoat and a deserter if he remained at home he was obliged to accept the uniform on pain of being called a crank and of actually by the psychological law that operates in these cases becoming one 
there is no type in our social history more significant than that ubiquitous figure the village atheist one recalls judge driscoll in puddinhead wilson the president of the free thinkers society of which puddinhead was the only other member judge driscoll says mark twain could be a free thinker and still hold his place in society because he was the person of most consequence in the community and therefore could venture to go his own way and follow out his own notions no respect for independence and individuality in short entitled a man to regulate his own views on life quite on the contrary that was the privilege solely of those who having proved themselves superlatively smart were able to take it as it were by force if you could out pioneer the pioneers you could wrest the possession of your own mind by that time in any case it was usually so soured and warped and embittered as to have become safely impotent as we can see now a vast unconscious conspiracy actuated all america against the creative spirit in an age when every sensitive mind in england was in full revolt against the blind mechanical devastating forces of a progress that promised nothing but the ultimate collapse of civilization when all europe was alive with prophets aristocratic prophets proletarian prophets religious and philosophical and humanitarian and economic and artistic prophets crying out in the name of the human spirit against the obscene advance of capitalistic industrialism in an age glorified by nothing but the beautiful anger of the tolstoys and the marxes the nietzsches and the renans the ruskins and the morrises in that age america innocent ignorant profoundly untroubled slept the righteous sleep of its own manifest and peculiar destiny we were in fact in our provincial isolation in just the state of the scandinavian countries during the european wars of eighteen sixty six to eighteen seventy as george brandis describes it in his autobiography while the intellectual life languished as a plant droops in a close confined place the people were self-satisfied they rested on their laurels and fell into a doze and while they dozed they had dreams the cultivated and especially the half-cultivated public in denmark and norway dreamed that they were the salt of europe they dreamed that by their idealism they would regenerate the foreign nations they dreamed that they were the free mighty north which would lead the cause of the peoples to victory and they woke up unfree impotent ignorant yes even new england the old home of so many brave and virile causes even new england which had cared so much for the freedom of the individual 
had ceased to afford any stimulus or any asylum for the human spirit new england had been literally emasculated by the civil war or rather by the exodus of young men westward which was more or less synchronous with the war the continent had been opened up the rural population of the east had been uprooted had been set in motion had formed habits of wandering the war like a fever had as it were stimulated the circulation of the race and we might say that by a natural attraction the blood of the head which new england had been had flowed into those remote members the western territories in roughing it mark twain has pictured the population of the gold fields it was a driving vigorous restless population in those days he says it was an assemblage of two hundred thousand young men not simpering dainty kid-glove weaklings but stalwart muscular dauntless young braves brimful of push and energy and royally endowed with every attribute that goes to make up a peerless and magnificent manhood the very pick and choice of the world's glorious ones no women no children no gray and stooping veterans none but erect bright-eyed quick-moving strong-handed young giants it was a splendid population for all the slow sleepy sluggish-brained sloths stayed at home you never find that sort of people among pioneers those gold fields of the west one might almost imagine that nature itself was awake and conscious and not only awake but shrewd and calculating to have placed such a magnet there at the farthest edge of the continent in order to captivate the highest imaginations in order to draw swiftly fatefully over that vast forbidding intervening space a population hardy enough inventive enough poetic enough if not to conquer and subdue at least to cover it and stake the claims of the future but what was the result one is often told by new englanders who were children in the years just after the war how the young men left the towns and villages never to return and has not a whole school of story writers and more recently of poets familiarized us with the life of this new england countryside during the generation that followed those villages full of old maids and a few tattered remnants of the male sex the less vigorous the less intelligent a population only half sane owing to solitude and the decay of social interests what a civilization they picture those novels and those poems a civilization riddled with neurasthenia madness and mental death christian science was as characteristic an outgrowth of this generation as abolition and perfectionism philosophy and poetry all those manifestations of a surplus of psychic energy 
had been of the generation before new england in short and with new england the whole spiritual life of the nation had passed into the condition of a neurotic anemia in which it has remained so largely to this day this explains the notorious petrifaction of boston that petrifaction of its higher levels which was illustrated in so tragicomic a way by the unhappy episode of mark twain's whittier birthday speech it was not the fault of those gently charming men emerson and longfellow and dr holmes that he was made to feel in his own phrase like a barkeeper in heaven they had no wish to be or to appear like graven idols it was the subsidence of the flood of life beneath them that had left them high and dry as the ark on ararat they continued survivals as they were of a happier age when a whole outlying population had in a measure shared their creative impulses to nod and smile to think and dream just as if nothing had happened they were not offended by mark twain's unlucky wit boston was offended boston which no longer open to the winds of impulse and desire cherished these men as the symbols of an extinct cause that had grown all the more sacrosanct in their eyes the less they participated in it for the real forces of boston society had gone the way of all flesh the brahmins and the sons of the brahmins had not followed bodily in the path of the pioneers but they had followed them discreetly in spirit they saved their faces by remaining like charles francis adams otherwise minded but they bought up land in kansas city just the same in a word the last stronghold of the stiff-necked and free-minded masculine individualism of the american past had capitulated to the golden eagle literature culture the conservation of the ideal had passed into the hands of women ah it was not women only not the sort of women who had so often tended the bright light of literature in france it was the sad ubiquitous spinster left behind with her own desiccated soul by the stampede of the young men westward new england had retained its cultural hegemony by default and the new england spinster with her restricted experience her complicated repressions and all her glacial taboos of good form had become the pacemaker in the arts one cannot but see in mr howells the predestined figurehead of this new regime it was the sign of the decay of artistic vitality in new england that the old literary brahmins were obliged to summon a westerner to carry on their apostolic succession for mr howells the first alien editor of the atlantic monthly was consecrated to the high priesthood by an all but literal laying on of hands and certainly mr howells 
already intimidated by the prestige of boston was a singularly appropriate heir he has told us in his autobiography how having as a young reporter in ohio stumbled upon a particularly sordid tragedy he resolved ever after to avert his eyes from the darker side of life an incident that throws rather a glaring light upon what later became his prime dogma that the more smiling aspects of life are the more american the dogma as we see was merely a rationalization of his own unconscious desire neither to see in america nor to say about america anything that americans in general did not wish to have seen or said his confessed aim was to reveal the charm of the commonplace an essentially passive and feminine conception of his art and while his superficial realism gave him the sanction of modernity it dispensed him at the same time from any of those drastic imaginative reconstructions of life and society that are of the essence of all masculine fiction in short he had attained a thoroughly denatured point of view and one nicely adapted to an age that would not tolerate any assault upon the established fact meanwhile the eminence of his position and his truly beautiful and distinguished talent made him what mark twain called the critical court of last resort in this country from whose decision there is no appeal the spokesman the mild and submissive dictator of an age in which women wrote half the books and formed the greater part of the reading public he diffused far and wide the notion of the artist's role through which he had found his own salvation a notion that is to say which accepted implicitly the religious moral and social taboos of the time i have said that during this epoch a vast unconscious conspiracy actuated all america against the creative life for is it not plain now that the cultural domination of this emasculated new england simply played into the hands of the business regime the taboos of the one supported in effect the taboos of the other the public opinion of both sexes and of all classes east and west alike formed a closed ring as it were against any manifestation of the vital restless critical disruptive spirit of artistic individuality it was this and not the fact or the illusion that america was a young country that impelled henry james and whistler and virtually every other american who possessed a vital sense of the artistic vocation to seek what necessarily became an exotic development in europe it was this that drove walt whitman into his lair at camden where he lived at bay during the rest of his life carrying on a perpetual guerrilla warfare 
against the whole literary confraternity of the age it was this we may assume that led john hay to publish the breadwinners anonymously and henry adams his novel democracy with the corruption the vulgarity the vapidity of american life these men were completely disillusioned but motives of self-preservation motives that would certainly not have operated in men of a corresponding type before the civil war restrained them from impairing by strong assertions of individual judgment the consistency of feeling upon which the pioneers rightly placed such a high value the tradition of literary independence had never been strong in america that the artist and the thinker are types whose integrity is vital to society and who are under a categorical imperative to pursue their vocation frankly and disinterestedly was an idea that had entered scarcely a dozen american minds our authors generally had accepted the complacent dictum of william cullen bryant that literature is a good staff but a bad crutch not a vocation in short but an avocation a few desperate minds justified themselves by representing the artist as a sort of glorified methodist minister and reacted so far from the prevailing materialism as to say that art was under a divine sanction we can see from the letters of george ennis and sidney lanier how these poor men these admirable and sincere men allowed themselves to be devoured by theory in general however the new dispensation bred a race of writers who accommodated themselves instinctively to the exigencies of an age that required a rigid conformity in spirit while maintaining as a sop to cerberus a highly artistic tradition in form thus save for the voice of the machine the whole nation was quiescent no spectre intruded upon the jolly family party of prosperous america there was no one to gainsay its blind and innocent longing for success for prestige for power mr meredith nicholson lately wrote a glowing eulogy on the idyllic life of the valley of democracy it is in keeping with the cheery contentment of the west he said that it believes that it has at home or can summon to its r f d box everything essential to human happiness why he added the west even has poets admirable poets representative poets and among these poets he mentioned the author of the spoon river anthology there we have a belated but none the less perfect illustration of the romantic dualism of the gilded age for in the very fact of becoming a cultural possession of the middle west 
the spoon river anthology completely upsets mr nicholson's glowing picture of its life mr nicholson does not see this to him as to mr howells the more smiling aspects of life are the more american but that is because he too has averted his eyes from all the other aspects there i say in that false syllogism of mr nicholson's we have a perfect illustration of the romantic dualism of the gilded age and of the part literature was obliged to play in it essentially america was not happy it was a dark jumble of decayed faiths of unconfessed class distinctions of repressed desires of inarticulate misery read the story of a country town and a son of the middle border and ethan frome it was a nation like other nations and one that had no folk music no folk art no folk poetry or next to none to express it to console it but to have said so would have been to hurt business it was a horde life a herd life an epic without sun or stars the twilight of a human spirit that had nothing upon which to feed but the living waters of camden and the dried manna of concord for the jolly family party was open to very few and those moreover who except for their intense family affections and a certain hectic joy of action that left them old and worn at fifty-five had foregone the best things life has to offer but was it not for the welfare of all that they so diligently promulgated the myth of america's manifest destiny perhaps perhaps since the prodigious task of pioneering had to be carried through perhaps also because after the disillusionments of the present epoch that myth will prove to have a certain beautiful residuum of truth End of chapter three part two recording by lucretia b